Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Rich Cohen writes in National Geographic Magazine's August cover story, which is out on stands now, titled Sugar Love, a Not-So-Sweet Story, that sugar was the oil of its day. The more you tasted, the more you wanted. In 1700, the average Englishman consumed four pounds a year. By 1900, he was up to 100 pounds a year. And today, the average American consumes 77 pounds of added sugar annually. That's more than 22 teaspoons of uh, added sugar a day. As uh, lands with oil and gas are greatly sought after today, so it was with lands for sugarcane that needed tropical, rain-drenched fields to flourish. In school, they call it the age of exploration. In reality, says Rich Cohen, it was the hunt for fields where sugarcane could prosper. Sugarcane features prominently in the history of slavery. Cohen reviews the fascinating role sugar has played in the history of the world and how it affects our health today and asks whether sugar is at the center of America's health crisis. Rich Cohen is a New York Times bestselling author, contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone, and author of that cover story um, for National Geographic, out now. And he's also author of a new book, Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. That'll be available in the fall. Rich Cohen, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, So uh, you're probably, uh, I don't know how you got this assignment, probably uh, perhaps someone at the National Geographic uh, thought about your your memoir, your previous book, Sweet and Low. Yep. My, uh, My grandfather was a counterman at a Brooklyn diner. And um, he always hated cleaning out the sugar dispensers. He thought it was unhygienic, the communal sugar bowl. And he got an old teabagging machine and, re- and converted it and invented the sugar packet. And then later, about 10 years after that, because he was always on a diet and wanted his own product to pack, uh, he got together with a chemist and he invented the first actual fake sugar, artificial sugar that went on like real sugar. And... Um, and he called it Sweet and Low. And he started selling it first to diabetics, uh, to hospitals where it was used for diabetics, and then people started stealing it. And he, like, he plugged into this huge diet craze all over the country and sort of changed the world. And, um, and in that book, I, write about, I wrote about the history of sugar somewhat because uh, I sort of felt that my grandfather's life story connected to the history of sugar. It was, it was uh, a result of the overconsumption of sugar this desire to find some other sweet thing to take its place. And in this story, I just went deeper into that, into the history, what it means and what it's doing to us now. Yeah, those little pink packets were ubiquitous for, for a while. They're uh, still out there. Yeah. You know, it's a more crowded market, though, because uh, you have Equal and Splenda and Stevia and all that. But Sweet and Low is sort of the cheapest to make, so I think mm-hmm. it'll always do okay. And they were, uh, your grandfather found they were stolen from hospitals. There's something in us. We, we want sweet. Any way we can get it. We crave sweets, but um, now we're so uh, we've sort of evolved to to do a lot with very little sweets. We're like the equivalent of a car that can go 200 miles on a single gallon of gas, and that's a relic of a time when sweets were incredibly scarce. And we had we became very efficient at converting just a little bit of fructose into fat. But now we're having 77 pounds of sugar a year. Uh, on average in America for, per person, and uh, the result is we're sort of flooded in this stuff that we just actually need very, very little of, and it's, you know, become a big health crisis. By the way, parenthetically, I'd, I hadn't been familiar with the book Sweet and Law, and I'm going to have to go out and read it. It's not only a story of sugar, but a story of your family, and uh, fortune gained, fortune lost, it sounds like a great book. Um, so you take your basic dysfunctional family and add... <laughs> hundred million dollars and watch what happens. Yes, yeah. So, uh, so that there, there's a book people could go out to and and read. Uh, so, how much how much sugar do we need? I I know we're we're eating way way too much uh, sugar beyond what we actually need. Well, that's like a big subject of debate, you know. And sugar is a big big industry. So, you have you know a sugar lobby. You have sugar manufacturers. You have scientists. And they have not agreed on a, on a recommended daily amount. And I think part of the problem is it's so much less than we're eating now that it could, could create a real problem. Like, let's say you're the Coca-Cola company and the, and the National Health Service comes out and says the recommended dose is less than what's in a single can of Coke. Then what? You know, so as a result, we're sort of a little bit on our own. All I know for sure is it's a lot less than we're eating. What happens when you eat a, a lot of sugar Sugar is made up of fructose and glucose, 
The glucose is processed by cells all over your body, but the fructose all goes straight to your liver. And if it comes in a liquid form, like Coke, uh, or even fruit juices, it's that, that much worse because it hits your liver very fast and very hard, and your liver is overwhelmed, can't properly process it. Your liver itself becomes fatty and then starts pushing fat and sugar out into your blood. And when you develop that condition, it's called metabolic syndrome. You're on your way to having you know, type 2 diabetes and all kinds of other problems. And right now, uh, they say that a third of all Americans have metabolic syndrome. A third of all Americans. Uh, so that's uh, that's a, a big part of explaining why uh, the uh, explosion of obesity. Uh, for example, and you, you quote this in your article in National Geographic, in 1980, 153 million people with diabetes, now more than 347 million. A third of adults um, with uh, high blood pressure now versus 5% in 1900. It's, it's uh, you could call it a crisis. Yeah, I mean, and part of the, part of the, the problem is it's this huge irony, which is at that time in 1985 or whatever the year was uh, when, when it was much lower, um, there was an effort to make people healthier by limiting the fat in your diet. So a lot of food manufacturers took the fat out of their products, but it needed to be replaced with something, and what it was replaced with was sugar in one form or another. Uh, and now it turns out that we stopped eating fat to make ourselves healthy and started eating more sugar and the problem might have really been sugar all along so sort of you do this thing to get healthy and you run right into the arms of disease in a way that's what i think's happened the last 30 years mm. yeah i think uh isn't it the fat tastes good too right so if you if you cut out fat and foods you got to add something to make it sweet you got to have something to make this stuff basically edible and enjoyable and another problem with sugar is um, it actually depletes your cells. The, the process of, of uh, digesting it de- depletes your cells, and you have the sugar crash. And the result is it makes you hungry. So actually eating more sugar, you get, it makes you hungrier. It becomes this kind of vicious cycle. With the more you eat, the hungrier you get. And the hungrier you get, the more you eat. One of the quotes in your article that really stood out to me, um, you say one of, the, one of your experts says that even, even the good guys, like the American Heart Association, they're attacking this uh, problem as excessive uh, uh, empty calories. But uh, someone says in the article, excessive sugar isn't just an empty uh, calorie, it's, it's toxic. Yeah, that's Robert Lustig, who's really like the leader of this, sort of saying sugar is actually a poison. It's not a poison like... Uh, if you drank Drano or something, but it's over a long period, I mean, not over years, over months, if eaten in uh, these huge quantities that we eat it at, that it's, it's toxic. It is a poison. It is poisoning our livers and making us ill. So it's not just that it doesn't, it's empty calories, it's just the sugar itself is actually toxic. Now, who, who bears responsibility then? I guess at the end, end of the day, uh, you know, we're responsible for what we put in our mouths. I guess you'd, a little bit different with children because they probably follow their, child, their parents. But uh, there is an ongoing battle, isn't there, with, the, uh, with big processed food and with the big soda. Um, right. Well, I, I, I basically agree in the general concept that people are responsible for themselves, but it's not like these decisions aren't being made. They're just being made by the, by the food companies. And the problem is that sometimes it's hard to figure out what you're eating. So you eat no-fat yogurt for breakfast, though you don't like it, believing that you're making yourself healthy, when in fact there's more sugar added to a serving of no-fat yogurt with fruit than there is to a can of Coke. So, um, and then also, like for the story, I went to uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, to a grade school, which is sort of the epicenter of this crisis. And... Um, you know, the kids there are eating two meals, two of their three meals a day are being eaten at the school. So then suddenly the school's in the position of feeding the, the kids. So then it's like you might say, I don't want the government involved, but the government is involved. I mean, that's the local government, but they're involved because they're feeding these kids. And they've actually taken it upon themselves to try to, you know, improve what they're feeding them. But, you know, it's a real problem which is that it's very hard it's very hard to control and it's not cheap to eat well it's it's much less expensive to eat badly you talked in in the story uh, about this school you know taking out the uh, the soda vending machines the snack machines they're trying to get healthier 
yeah, they're trying to get healthier, and they realize, you know, they see it in their students. They have kids, you know, who are third and fourth grade. They're like 130 pounds, and they can't run, and they can't walk, and they're having all kinds of other problems. And the school has sort of taken upon itself. They got rid of their um, soda machine. They got rid of their candy machine. They changed around the meal, you know, but it's it's sort of like there's only so much you could do because then the kid goes home and, and eats a bunch of stuff just, without even thinking about it. You talked to a, a, a boy named Nick. I can't remember how old he was or is. He was, when I talked to him, he was uh, just going into junior high. Now he's older, obviously. Getting and, older every day, in fact. And he had he has said something that I think resonates with all of us. He says, why are the good things so bad for you? He, right. he, he recognizes it. And his mother's trying to, to get them to eat healthier. Yeah, I mean, his mother uh, is really aware of that there's a you know that there's a that the bad future lies ahead for her kid if he can't get his weight and his consumption under control and places like Clarksdale it's just hard because um there's just not a lot of the sort of supermarkets you would need to get the food that's going to be healthy for you so it puts a lot upon parents in this case a single parent who's already working and incredibly busy now has to be kind of a nutritionist too it's it's difficult but she's doing it mm-hmm you point out that it's it is, and you just uh, said it right there. It is harder if you're poor, right? It, it's harder to get away from sugar. Yeah, because you can, you know, there's no Whole Foods near where these people live. There's no place where you can go and say, okay, this is okay, that is okay. You go to the supermarket, and the products on the shelves are often, you know, at the bottom end. Uh, they're cheap, but the, one of the ways they're cheap is they just load them up with high fructose corn syrup and sugar as a preservative, and to give flavor to these things, and you're just putting it in your body day after day after day, and it becomes a kind of poison. Hmm. I think all of us uh, wonder about this. We, uh, you know, I think we, we know that excess sugar is bad for us, but it's just so good. And, I, and, and, it's, and, and then there's the emotional component. You know, some of us eat, especially sweets, for, for emotional reasons. Then you have negative emotions when you try to get away from it and fail. It's just a vicious cycle. Yeah, no, I have the same problem myself. I mean, it's, it's, I eat a lot of sweets. I try not to, but I have little kids. Food that I've basically prevented myself from eating this stuff by basically keeping it out of my house. But now that I have little kids, all this stuff's back in my house, and it's impossible not to just start shoving it in your mouth in the course of the day. So I know how, I know how hard it is. I mean, I don't, and I'm not suggesting that anybody um, give up sugar or quit sugar, or that sugar is bad. I just think it's bad in the amount that we eat. And if everybody were to just try to pay attention to how much they're eating and cut that in half, you know, which wouldn't be that hard because a lot of it you're eating, you're getting in places like milk that you don't even realize you're getting it, that, that everyone would be better off. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you uh, what, what, what your personal, I don't know, interaction with sugar is, given your hi- your, the history of your family. And that you've thought a lot about this, I'm sure, writing, writing the previous book. And... Well, part of the saga of my family story is that there was a huge fortune made, and my side of the family was disinherited. So I've never been a huge lover of Sweet and Low myself. Um, also, it's, it's, uh, I, don't, I never liked those. One of the, the way that artificial sweeteners work, it's not that they don't have calories. It's that they're so much sweeter than sugar that they can be used in such a minuscule amount that it's as if they have no calories. So I never really liked that. I mean, it's sort of like the thing about sugar, whatever you say about it, sugar is old. It's been around, you know, it started being processed in New Guinea 10,000 years ago. It's made its way through Asia. It's made its way into Europe really in the late Middle Ages, early in the Renaissance. And, um, and then, you know, so... I sort of think sugar is a good thing. It is kind of a wonderful thing. It's just that it's become so ubiquitous. When it started uh, appearing in Europe, it was a rare spice. It was like cinnamon. That's how it was consumed for a little bit of flavor, a little bit of way to sweeten your life. But now 77 pounds a year. Imagine eating 77 pounds a year of cinnamon. And that's basically what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to imagine that. It would just seem too much. Yeah. But I guess and it's, so sugar went from yeah. being a spice, which is probably what it should be, you know, um, used sparingly in ex- certain situations, to being a staple. And it's really not, our bodies are not uh, adapted to, to, to digesting sugar as a staple, as one of our main sources of calories. 
you just joined us in Access Utah, we're talking with Rich Cohen. He is a uh, New York Times bestselling author. He's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone. He's written uh, seven books, including uh, the widely acclaimed memoir that we made reference to earlier, Sweet and Low. His work has appeared in New Yorker, Atlantic Monthly, Harbors Magazine, Best American uh, Essays. And uh, he is author of the cover story for the August edition of National Geographic magazine that's out on stands now, and it's uh, called Sugar Love, a not-so-sweet story. Uh, he has a book coming out in the fall um, on the 1985 Chicago Bears. It's called Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears' Wild Heart of Football. We're talking about sugar on uh, today's story. Uh, I think that's apt, the subtitle, A Not-So-Sweet Story, Sugar Love. Um, And you're welcome to join the conversation. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll get into some of the history of sugar. Sugar is intertwined with much of the history of the world, including the history of slavery. Very interesting history there. And Rich Cohen details that in his article in National Geographic. You can join the program at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page or by email at upraxis at gmail.com. Back after the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, it's homemade Nutella, Stump the Cook with Ted Allen, host of Chopped, and Remembering Julia Child. Join us. That's this week on The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesdays at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and area-info.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thank you for joining me today. My guest today is Rich Cohen, New York Times bestselling author. He writes in National Geographic Magazine's August cover story, which is out now, titled Sugar Love, a not-so-sweet story, that sugar was the oil of its day. In 1700, the average Englishman consumed four pounds a year. And by 1900, he was up to 100 pounds a year. The average American today consumes 77 pounds of added sugar annually, or more than 22 teaspoons of added sugar a day. And uh, Rich Cohen reviews the fascinating role sugar has played in the history of the world and how it affects our health today. We've been talking about that latter uh, topic uh, in the first segment of the program. We'll make a transition talking about the history of sugar. Uh, first, Rich Cohen, I wanted to uh, talk about a, another couple of things uh, about today, that how uh, sugar affects us today. One of your experts says something very interesting in the article. Uh, they said, we exercise too little and eat too much because of sugar, kind of the v- reverse of the way we usually think of it. Right. Well, that was sort of a stunner to me. That was R- uh, Richard Johnson who was saying that sugar actually so depletes you energy-wise. You have such a crash that you eat sugar and it's you you sort of are beached on the couch, you know? And it's sort of like sugar actually makes it harder for us to exercise. It, it saps your energy so much. So it's not that you're not exercising because you're lazy and you're getting fat. You're basically not exercising because you're addicted to sugar. Hmm. Um, I'm going to throw, open the phone lines here and throw out a couple of questions uh, to you as you're listening to the program. Uh, I'd like to hear your story, how you've reduced your sugar intake. I have some friends who've done it very successfully. I'm kind of jealous of them. Um, I'd like to hear your story. Uh, can you escape sugar? It's, it's in processed food. And uh, how to address America's obesity problem, especially with regard to children. I think we have a special worry there as uh, childhood obesity in- continues to increase. The numbers are 1-800-826-1495. That's the phone number. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And you can join us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. So you write, Rich Cohen, that uh, you you go back about 10,000 years to New Guinea, um, and uh, the the islanders there knew about sugar, sugar cane. In fact, it was was part of their origin story. Yeah, well, it was almost a uh, religious sacrament. They'd have rituals based around sugar cane, and they believed that basically the first human being— their Adam, if you will, was a product of, uh, this is their legend, I don't think they literally believed it, but uh, was uh, basically um, 
a product of the first man um, procreating with sugarcane. And that's where the human race came from. And their, rig- their rituals continued to evolve sugarcane until recently when the rituals continue, but the place of sugarcane has been taken by a can of Coke mm. in their ceremonies. Interesting. So yeah. it's still sugar, but it's that some 10 ounces of sugar that's in an average can of right. soda. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Sugarcane's, you know, a fruit, basically, and, and they would, they would take, pick it and suck on it and get this sweet taste. But then somewhere along the way, about 10,000 years ago, somebody figured out how to refine it to basically get the soul of the sweetness out of the sugar cane and eventually process it into white powder, our sugar. And that was a secret science. And it was passed down and eventually made its way to the Asian mainland. And you can watch it like go like a shadow across the world. It's in India. Then it goes to Persia. Then the Arab armies came and conquered Persia. And one of the things they took away from Persia was sugar cane and this knowledge of how to process it. And the Arabs brought it all the way into the Middle East and the North Africa. And then during the Crusades, European knights went into the Middle East, went to Jerusalem, and they tasted sugar for the first time. And they brought it back to Europe. And the Europeans went so nuts for it that they wanted to grow their own. And they realized the only place you can grow sugar is basically the tropics, where it's you know profitable, where you have enough rain and the right weather. And you can look at the whole age of exploration. Another way to look at it is really is a sugar boom. And they were, uh, Europeans were searching and competing for islands in the Caribbean and uh, Florida, Louisiana, places where they could grow sugarcane profitably. And, um, and Columbus brought the first sugarcane to the New World, to Hispaniola, in the hold of a ship on his second voyage in 1493. And, um, and then in order, you know, originally... When they built sugar plantations, they tried to have the Native Americans, the people living on those islands, work them as basically slaves, and they died. The the work was so hard it actually killed them. And then the the Atlantic slave trade started filling up those plantations with slaves from Africa. And in the whole history of the Atlantic slave trade, half of all the people brought to the Western Hemisphere in chains, half of them uh, wound up working on uh, sugar plantations. So really, sugar was the thing that drove slavery, uh, and it drove a lot of the conquest of the islands. And um, a really fascinating quote I came across was a, a historian who says that it wasn't that Europeans thought uh, Africans were inferior and thus took them as slaves. They created the myth of inferiority uh, in order to justify the slave trade that was necessary to make the whole machine go. Mm. We'll talk more about that fascinating interaction between sugarcane and and slavery. Um, and there's a very interesting quote you have by uh, one of the reformers as as well. It, it appears in uh, Voltaire's Candide as well. Uh, we'll get into that. We, we have an email and a call here. And uh, by the way, you can join the conversation. We'd love to get your take on sugar. Have you been able to reduce your sugar intake, and how have you done it? Uh, can we even escape sugar? It's, it's in our processed food. And uh, how to address America's obesity problem, especially with children. Those questions we're throwing out to you. Or uh, any comments you have, the number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page and by email at upraxis at gmail.com. We bring in our caller, Terrence, in Cedar City. Terrence, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, so basically what I wanted to say was um, a while ago my weight had got out of control. I'm five foot ten, and I, I had been about 160 pounds uh, since I graduated high school. I'm turning 30 next week. And I had ballooned to like 200 pounds. And so in an effort to control that weight gain, I stopped drinking um, soda, sugary soda, like a normal Coke, and I switched it for like a Coke Zero instead. And within six months, I had, I had dropped like 35 pounds, and I continued on, and I, I'm back to 160, and it, it was a complete diet shift, but I think the key to it was eliminating the sugar I was drinking, because I think when you do that, um, you're not getting the calories and, and other things like if you were to eat um, something with sugar in it, because then you, your stomach gets full, right? But when you're drinking sugar... I think you drink sugar and then you want to eat as well. So you're, it, it's kind of a combination of the two. But I definitely think eliminating the sugar that you drink it helps a ton in trying to control your weight. Hmm. What do you think of that, Rich Cohen? I think that's 
completely right. Congratulations on that. And uh, I think that what happens is when you drink sugar, a couple things happen. One is it's not just the calories. It's that sugar, because it, because it causes this crash, it depletes your, your energy and your cells. It actually makes you hungry, which is why you're eating more when you're drinking Coke, because it makes you hungry. And so you get rid of the sugar from that, then you don't have that, those sort of hunger binges. And then in addition to all that, sugar actually uh, damages your liver and causes it not, not to function properly, and that gets to be a problem with everything else too. But the good news is that when you stop having so much sugar, your, lo- your liver just recovers in a, in a couple of weeks or a month, and then you start getting into this kind of virtuous cycle where you drink less and you eat less and you lose weight and your liver gets healthy and you're better all around. So yeah, that's, good work. That's encouraging right. news. So Terrence, it sounds like that's what you experienced. Yeah, I certainly, uh, like now, um, it used to be, you know, I would grab, uh, you know, a honey bun and a banana for breakfast, and I would still be hungry at 10, and, and now that shift has happened where uh, it's a 20-ounce bottle of water and an apple will get me to lunch, and, you know, that may not be the healthiest approach to breakfast, but it's certainly uh, a, a shift from what I was doing before as far as calorie intake, and then I have, I, I now when I work out, it's not so painful because I'm not carrying around a 35-pound, 40-pound back, backpack of extra weight, and so then I'm not so miserable when I exercise, and it becomes rewarding versus a uh, painful experience just because, you know, that extra weight is gone. So mm. it's hard to get there, but once you do, uh, I think the rewards are 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 there, you know. No, oh, excellent. Well, congratulations. Sounds like you've had some success. All right. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Have a good day. Oh, thank you, Terrence. Appreciate that. Terrence called 1-800-826-1495. You can as well. We're throwing out some questions to you. Very curious as how you've reduced your sugar intake. It's very, very hard for all of us and uh, so far impossible for some of us. I, I include myself in that. I just, <laughs> I'm just pretty addicted. Uh, can we even escape sugar? It's, it's in our processed food. And how to address America's obesity problem, uh, especially with the children? The number 1-800-826-1495. On our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, you can comment there or by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Rich Cohen is our guest. He is the author of the cover story for the August National Geographic magazine, entitled Sugar Love, A Not-So-Sweet Story. He says sugar was the oil of its day. Uh, In 1700, the average Englishman consumed four pounds a year. By 1900, he was up to 100 pounds a year. Today, the average American consumes 77 pounds of added sugar annually, more than 22 teaspoons of added sugar a day. That is contributing to our obesity and other health uh, problems, our health crisis. Um, And uh, we have uh, an email. Uh, Rich Cohn, I want to, uh, to get to this. Uh, This is from Brian in Hyde Park. He says, My family doesn't eat a lot of prepared foods. We bottle and freeze our own garden produce. However, from time to time, I indulge in a sweet prepared treat. Does it make any difference at all whether I choose a product made with cane sugar versus corn syrup? There's definitely a difference in taste with the micro-brewed root beers I like to indulge in every so often. Cane sugar tastes better. That's Brian in Hyde Park. Well, in the last uh, few years high fructose corn syrup uh, has sort of become like a, a bogeyman, and people think that that's behind a lot of things. As far as your body is concerned, it's basically the same thing as cane sugar or beet sugar uh, in that it, it, is, it consists of fructose and glucose. It is a little different in that um, the stuff that really seems to cause us trouble is fructose. That, that's what goes to our liver. In cane sugar, it's basically one part fructose to one part glucose. It's a 50-50 split. In high fructose corn syrup, maybe it's 60 parts fructose to 40 parts glucose, you know. So it's actually a little more fructose, so it's a little worse, a little harder on your body, but uh, it's marginal. But it's true that in soft drinks and most things now, high fructose corn syrup is used, not cane sugar, and that's mostly because it's a much less expensive uh, ingredient, and it means a bigger profit for the soft drink companies. Hmm. Uh, Brian, by the way, says he doesn't eat a lot of prepared foods. They bottle and freeze their own garden produce. I suppose that's that's a very healthy lifestyle if you can if you can get yourself there. Yeah, I mean the problem that a lot of people have and that I have is you're eating things that you think are good for you, but they're not. And uh, and if and if you're growing things yourself, obviously that's 
the ultimate control over your diet, but most people don't have the time or the land or the inclination to do it, and they're sort of at the whim of the labeling and, and what they buy in the supermarket. Um, we have another uh, caller, by the way. The number is 1-800-826-1495. We'd uh, love to hear from you with your success stories, or perhaps you can commiserate with me and other listeners on uh, lack of success stories and give ourselves some hope. Uh, we heard from Terrence in Cedar City, a success story there. Uh, how do you reduce your sugar intake? Uh, can we even escape sugar? It's in our processed food. And how to address America's obesity problem, especially with children. Rich Cohen is our guest. Uh, he's author of uh, National Geographic's August cover story about sugar. Um, and let's go to our next uh, caller, who's Terry, who's from Las Vegas, but calling us from Cedar City. Uh, Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, back in the early 70s, I believe Gloria Swanson wrote a book called Sugar Blues. I remember reading it, and she blamed all illnesses, depression on a consumption of sugar. And I was just wondering if the author is aware of her writings, if he read her book. It's an old book. Yeah. No, I never read her book. Maybe she was just ahead of her time. I mean, what, which, what surprised me about all this was how many of the, the really serious diseases that now afflict uh, Americans, the, the doctors I talked to told me they believe they can trace back to sugar. So even like high blood pressure, I remember my father being told to lay off salt, and it turns out that salt is only a problem because of sugar. Sugar damages our liver, so it can't properly process salt. And um, and I even uh, there was even a, this Robert Lustig, uh, who's a scientist, a doctor, who said that he believes that even cancers are created by sugar or made worse by sugar, and that when you have too much sugar, uh, your body starts producing more and more insulin, and that insulin uh, becomes a kind of uh, fertilizer for tumors and even makes growth that might be benign become malignant. So it sounds like the early 70s was a message that was ahead of its time a little too early, you know. Uh, you know, go through the supermarket, try to, my, my partner's uh, borderline diabetic, so we're going through and no sugar eating, and it's it's really a challenge to go through the supermarket and look at the labels and, you know, even when you said yogurt, a plain yogurt, I thought, yeah. wow, that's sugar too. What do yeah, you no, do? The problem is you sort of go through the supermarket, you think, okay, I mean, I'm not somebody who's like a prohibitionist of sugar, thinks you shouldn't have sugar. Or I just think you should know when you're having it and control how much you have. So you go to the supermarket, you buy a box of cookies, you think, okay, that's sugar. And then you buy a thing of yogurt and you think, but that's not. But, in fact, the yogurt might have more sugar than the cookies. Yeah, or even ketchup. Everything has sugar in it. It's, yeah. it's hard to get away from it. It's very, very hard. And in the last, like, 20 years, as they've said fat was a problem, they got rid of fat. They took the fat out of foods. They had to replace it with something. They replaced it with sugar. Hmm. It was, well, I'll tell you, I'll yeah. Thank you for writing that. I'm going to go get the National Geographic and grab your book and get upgraded and all this stuff. Thank you awesome. so much. Yeah, good luck to you. Good <laughs> luck to you. That's uh, And he points out a, a very important problem. It's it's in the processed food. You you sort of have to go like Brian and his family, do, do your own food. Yeah, you have to really be careful. You have to look. You have to educate yourself. And you have to realize that the sugar is not only used for flavor or even for bulk. It's also used as a preservative in canned foods. Uh, here's an email from Danielle in Logan that's apropos to the discussion we are just having. Um, one important thing to realize when cutting back on sugar is reading the ingredient list on food and drink. We need to pay attention to what type of sugar we're consuming. Soda, candy, processed foods generally contain high fructose corn syrup and other types of fake sugar. The type of sugar that's okay to consume is what we eat in fruit, what's in apples and oranges. Am I wrong in thinking this? That's Danielle. Well, the truth is, it's all basically the same. I mean, sugar is sugar. There's no, there's none. The high fructose corn syrup is sugar from corn. That's all it is. And I told you that the proportion of fructose to glucose is a little bit less favorable, but it's marginal. Um, but the thing about fruit is, fruit has so many good things in it for you, uh, along with the sugar, that it's like a net positive. I mean, you can get fat by eating a lot of fruit. But most, and also the thing about fruit is, it's got all those good things, and it also takes a while to eat, and, it take, and your body slowly digests it. Um, but if you have the same amount of sugar, you know, like if you were to have... The Be Well moment is made possible... Hello? Uh, yes, go ahead. I forgot. If you were to have a glass of orange juice, you might drink it in two minutes. It might have the equivalent of six 
oranges worth of sugar. If you were to sit down and you would never sit down and eat six oranges, you'd throw up. But you consume the same amount of sugar in two minutes in orange juice, and then there might also be sugar added to that. So it's not really, there's no magic like if I just cut out high fructose corn syrup or if I just cut out this or just cut out that. It's just a question of controlling the amount. It's mm. about moderation. And the problem is you think you're being moderate, but you're not because you're consuming it in all these sort of secret places. Uh, we have another caller, Valerie, in uh, Cedar City. Uh, Valerie, thanks for waiting, and we're glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Do we have... Hi, Cedar yes. City Day. Go Cedar. Um, I am still caffeine-dependent in my life, and for a number of years, I used really a lot of diet soda. And then I saw a, a documentary on the really poisonous aspect to um, the aspartame. So I now just use stevia, and it has been just wonderful. You know, I, I use it in iced tea, and I know that that may be not the most perfect thing for me to have, but it is so far superior to any of the diet drinks. It's a much better alternative. So I just put that out there. Iced tea, a little bit of lemon, and some stevia is great. And I'm so glad that you're addressing this uh this subject is such an important thing. Thanks a lot. Uh, by the way, before we uh, get a response from Rich Cohen, uh, you made reference to all of our callers from Cedar City. Is there something, uh, I guess, Cedar City uh, ites uh, are especially healthy, are they? What uh, anti-sugar? I wonder what the deal is. Well, we're just we just rule. That's you, it. You just rule. Okay, great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great. Uh, Rich Cohen, uh, uh, what do you think about? Uh, about well, I don't, idea. I don't really have any, myself, I don't use any uh, artificial sweeteners that I'm aware of. You know, part of the problem with the artificial sweeteners is a lot of them, you can't cook with them in the same way, so they, could, they can't really be used in everything, and that's not true of all of them. But I basically think the general rule is moderation. I mean, I, I did a bunch of research on aspartame for my book, Sweet and Low, and I didn't really, there, for a long time, it was believed that it created problems with your brain. But it turned out, if you believe the, well, the science at the time, that it was only a problem if you had a certain pre-existing condition with, your, with seizures. Um, but I do think that if you were to have 77 pounds of aspartame a year, that's how much sugar you'd be, that would be very bad. And I do think that, uh, that the moderation is the key. See, the thing about like aspartame is aspartame, if you have a Diet Coke, you're having aspartame, you know it. But if, aspart if there was 20 grams of aspartame in yogurt, in milk, and all those things, then you'd have a real problem. Um, that's not the situation with artificial sweeteners, but it is the situation uh, with sugar, and the best defense against it is just knowing where it is and trying, you know, if everybody tried to cut by one half the amount of uh, added sugar they were having every day, I think we'd be in great shape. Mm. Well, thanks, Valerie, and good luck to you. Uh, we're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, some of the history of sugar. It's very fascinating uh, how it intertwines with the, with the history of exploration, history of the world, and we'll talk about solutions. We've been talking about that as well with some of our callers. We'd love to hear your solution. How have you uh, reduced your sugar intake and gotten healthier? Or perhaps you want to tell us about your struggle. You're not successful yet. Uh, can we even escape sugar? We've talked a little bit about that. It's in our processed food and how to address America's obesity problem, especially with regard to children. Maybe you have an idea for some public policy changes. The number is 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email at upraccess at gmail.com and on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Back with Rich Cohen following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Bonnie Plants, plant growers since 1918, dedicated to sharing a love of gardening to help people become successful and productive vegetable and herb gardeners. Information is at bonnieplants.com. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. We've all heard the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But how many of us actually routinely receive preventive services? Preventive services can include regular physical exams conducted by your primary care physician, blood tests, certain measurements like weight and blood pressure, immunizations, and screening tests to look for signs of cancer or heart disease. 
All of these services can help your doctor identify common yet potentially serious health concerns early. And early detection means early and hopefully more successful treatment. So how do you know which prevention services you need? The best thing to do is check with your general doctor. He or she should be able to tell you which tests you need and how often you need them, based on your gender, age, and family history. Keeping up with routine health screenings is key to preventing disease and staying healthy. This is Dana Barrett for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about sugar. The uh, cover article in the National Geographic Magazine's August uh, edition is Sugar Love, a Not-So-Sweet Story. Rich Cohen is the author. He is New York Times best-selling author, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone, and author of National Geographic Magazine's August cover story. Um, that's out on stands now, as I mentioned, and uh, author of a book coming out in the fall called Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. We mentioned earlier in the program his widely acclaimed memoir, Sweet and Low. His grandfather invented the sugar packet and uh, Sweet and Low, and uh, that sounds like a, a very interesting book. You could pick that up as well. Rich Cohen with us uh, for another uh, seven or eight minutes. You're welcome to join the conversation at one 800 1495 by email at upraxcess at gmail.com or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We're asking you how you've reduced your sugar intake. Can we even escape sugar, and how do we address America's obesity problem? And we bring in next uh, Linda from uh, Wyoming. Linda, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. You're our first non-Cedar City caller. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> well, I was just in Cedar City. That's oh, probably why I'm here. That's, prob- that's probably why you're calling. Uh, go ahead I'm, with your question or comment. I'm driving from Wyoming to California. Mr. Cohen, what a great honor it is to be able to listen to you and to speak with you. I am a grandmother who is raising two grandchildren, so I'm of the generation that was raised on sugar. I have the cavities to prove it. And... These children, it's so hard. You go to nutritionists and they tell you, don't eat very much fruit, don't give them fruit juice, you know, make them drink water, 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 water. But you can't live on water. So yeah, and you, you can't be sort really of so strict about it. Because I remember that I grew up with a kid who uh, his father was a dentist and they weren't allowed to have any sugar. And he'd get to our house and it was like a sailor on liberty. He'd go crazy. <laughs> right. You know, just rummaging through our shelves looking for anything with sugar in it. So, and I have young kids myself. I mean, I do, I mean, fruit juice, anything that's like a ton of sugar, and it's just like using up every, all your allowance in one thing. It's like, it's just a bad use of your sugar allowance, as far as I'm concerned, because it's so much sugar and you get so little for it. But I do think those nutritionists are right about water, 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 water. And then you save your sugar for things like, you know, birthday cake or, special occasions. It's definitely tough, but um, it's sort of really necessary uh, to have healthy kids. Well, and and even cooking, we make, I make 90% of all of our food, but it's so hard to cook and not use a lot of sugar. I've gone to the, the pure sugars. I'm buying, you know, paying exorbitant prices for good sugar, but it's still sugar. Yep. It's definitely, it's, if it was easy, you know, then I probably wouldn't be on the show. Mm. I it's, think the thing that I wanted to impart on you, though, is that we're so, you're so right on about the aspartame and all the unhealthy artificial sugars. We've completely cut that out of our diet, and it makes a huge difference in the mental capacity for young children to focus at school. You'd be totally surprised, you wouldn't be, but probably a lot of the callers would be so surprised to find out how difficult it is for these kids that are so infused with artificial sweeteners to focus at school. And it makes, I have personally seen a huge difference in just one of my two children. So I I applaud you for that. we, We do everything we can to avoid those. Well, thank, thank thanks, I mean, Linda. I think it's really true. I mean, it's like what you eat has a huge effect on your ability to concentrate and to learn. Mm-hmm. And I spent 
you know, while we're working on this story, I spent some time at a grade school in Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is especially hard hit by this problem. And there, most of the kids there are getting two meals a day at the school, which suddenly makes that an incredibly important part of the school's job, which you really wouldn't think it would be. But not only is it for their health, but they, these kids have to have breakfast at the school and then go supposedly study for three or four hours. So it becomes important that they don't, you know, ramp them up on sugar, and then an hour later they're going to crash. Hmm. Well, thank you, Linda. Appreciate those good ideas. Um, thank you so much. Appreciate the call. You can call. Uh, we have uh, just uh, time to fit your call in, uh, another uh, three uh, minutes or so, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us on email at upraxis at gmail.com. Rich Cohen, New York Times bestselling author, is with us. He wrote the August cover story for New York uh, for National Geographic. It's entitled Sugar Love, A Not-So-Sweet Story. The magazine is on newsstands uh, now. Uh, piggybacking on what Linda was saying, I wonder, Rich Cohen, how we combat advertising. The, the advertising aimed at the children um, often is advertising very sugary stuff. Yeah, well, I don't know how you combat it, except it's hard as a parent. You're under so many, you're just like an onslaught, you know, and um, I think you just have to just not let yourself be brainwashed into eating things you don't want to eat or buying things you don't want to buy, you know, so... Um, it's hard. I mean, it's really hard. It's, I have a really hard time with it myself, and I feel like I, I'm losing the battle a lot of the time. But um, you just got to keep trying to know what you're eating and to control it and to just be aware of how, many, how much sugar you're eating. The key to everything, the key to life, I believe, is just moderation. You know, so less of everything and um, less sugar, a lot less sugar, and you're just going to live longer and you're going to live better. We have one last caller. This is Clark in Arizona. We have just 30 seconds left, so you get the last word, uh, Clark, uh, very, very quickly. Hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I'm just sitting here listening to you guys, and um, I have an ongoing debate with friends of mine on aspartame, and after tons of research on it, I, uh, I mean, I think there's so much myth around the, the unhealthiness of it, um, and I'd just like your, your uh, guest to comment on that more because I've noticed several callers have come in and, oh. and uh, have said, Things about it. I just don't think there's any science behind that. But okay, thanks, thanks for taking my call. Thanks, Clark. About ten seconds, Rich Cohen, for your answer. Well, I, I said before I agree with the caller. I mean, I did a bunch of research when doing my book, Sweet and Low, and um, aspartame. It feels wrong to people because it feels fake. But the fact is, there's never really been any research or science to show that it's a problem for anybody except people who have this pre-existing brain condition I mentioned. And in that case, it's not even the aspartame that hurts them. It's the fact that it causes the medicine which prevents seizures to stop working. So if you look at the side of a, a can of Diet Coke, it will have a warning that if you uh, suffer from PKU, you shouldn't uh, drink aspartame. Other than that, nothing's really been shown. It went through a long FDA process. But also, like I said, it's, we just don't consume it in the amounts that we consume sugar. If we did, then it might be a different issue. But as it is now, I think it's completely safe. Well, we reached the end of time. Uh, Rich Cohn, New York Times bestselling author, contributing editor of Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone, author of National Geographic's uh, August cover story. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For uh, producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Hi, I'm Carl Berger, and Sherry is my sweet and loving wife. My name is Sharon Berger, and I'm the wife of Carl Berger. You know, Sherry, we've been married 55 or almost 55 years, is that right? That's right. And it's been a good, good, good run, I'd say, but probably one of the most exciting and most stressful and most interesting years was that one year in 1997. We were in New Orleans, and we were on our way back. You started pacing around the airport, and I said, are you feeling all right? And you said, I, I just have to walk. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started. And uh, what happened as I got on board the plane was 
extremely severe stomach stomach cramps. Uh, it got worse and worse and worse until by the time we got back to, to Detroit, I, I literally said to you, I really think we've got to get to the hospital. The emergency room took you in right away. And they uh, they did a wonderful job, I thought, of diagnosing and, and, uh, and somewhat, I think, concurred with me, gave me some very strong pain medication, and which worked right away, and we went home and I went to bed. Uh, the next morning, I woke up and I stood up and I turned to you and said, I don't think I'm going to make it. I called 911. You were incoherent. You weren't talking or anything, so... And uh, two months later, I woke up. <laughs> what happened during those two months? <laughs> yeah, well, During the two months, a lot of things <laughs> happened. One of the uh, doctors came and said, uh, he may, may not make this. A little voice in my head says he's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, the diagnosis was uh, a dissected artery, which means an artery uh, pulled apart somewhere in my yeah. abdomen. So that was quite a shock. And that started a long, long series of attempting to recuperate, right. which were not really all that successful. At the time, they had not closed up your stomach. Your stomach was still open because they wanted to heal from the inside out. Mm -hmm. But they had put a mesh across your stomach, and they were pulling the net mesh together Mm -hmm. gently each day. It took them about two months to get that closed. Two months to completely yeah, close yeah. up the, the stomach area there. They started to, to have me try to lift my legs, and I, of course, couldn't do so. But I just despaired that I'd ever be able to walk again because I had no muscle strength. The other problem, of course, was there was mental rehabilitation as well. But do you remember having MRSA? MRSA is, of course, that, that terribly yeah. resistant bacteria that you get often in hospitals. And I had, of course, picked it up because you came in one day and you were completely gowned from top to bottom, mask on, everything mm -hmm. like that. And from that point on, everybody that came in the room, they were completely um, masked and gowned. Mm -hmm. Those were the times when the doctor said you better call and sit, tell them that it, it may not be too long. You were suffering from sepsis and pneumonia and... Kidney um, failure. Kidney failure, mm -hmm. right. It was one of those things that where you seemed to get well and then you'd get sick, and then you'd seem to get well and then you'd get sick. And one of the interesting things is to having gone through all of this, to be able to let people know that there is hope there. It's always out there. You can always reach. And I realized at one point that I was a fighter. I never thought I was, but I realized I was a fighter. Yes, I coined the, I coined the word stoic. <laughs> the, doc the doctors would come in and say, why is he always smiling? And I said, because he's a very stoic person. He won't let you know that he's in pain. I want you to know that that year changed one other thing in my life, and that was for me to realize how much I terribly love you because you were there for me every single day. Thank and, you, honey. <laughs> and it was just wonderful. I can't believe that you would do all that for me. Well, you did it for me when I said, Carl, don't you leave me. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Maybe that's what gave me the yeah. fighting spirit. I'm, <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure it was. Right. Well, it's been wonderful, honey. Thank it's you, It's a honey. great ride. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving southwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSU FM HD1 Logan.